Sculptors are object makers, but I consider myself an idea maker. Although the ideas eventually manifest themselves as objects, it's still the strength of the idea that makes the object work for me. Hello and welcome to AI, also known as Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am with Don Gelinella, who is a sculptor. So you work primarily in steel, is that correct? Or? Yeah, and other other objects, assemblages of recyclable objects, repurposed objects, wood sometimes. My ideas have been really well received by juries and selection committees as of late. And I just landed two more commissions last week, and I think there's a few more on the way. So what are the ideas that people are responding to so well? Well, you know, I try to target projects that I have a personal interest in that deal with the environment or animals or recycling, which are near and dear to my heart, you know, because I've had a lifelong reverence and love for animals and the environment. So I try to come up with creative solutions to the problems they're proposing. So, for instance, they were asking for several sculptures to memorialize the monarch migration mm. in Riverside, Missouri. I came up with the concept of, because of the, the plethora of butterflies that flock through that area, what would it be like if they all of a sudden organized themselves in some magical way and landed in one place to form one large monarch, 200 stainless steel butterflies, wow. all as one, forming one grand monarch, as it were. How did you get started working in recycled and metal and scrap? Well, and I think it was, like a, it was a practical consideration at first as a young artist, you know, to use the cheapest material possible and the available material. Plus, once you start going to scrap yards and uh, junkyards, you see the tremendous waste in the society. You see hundreds of dog bowls and pots and pans and things like that. So reusing them in such a way to draw awareness to the overabundance of waste and materialism always interested me. So you said always. So as, as an, a young adult, as a child, I mean, were you like one of those kids who collected stuff and built tree houses? Or? Yeah. Well, my dad used to putter around in the basement. Where he had a table saw and under, he had a box under the table saw that had little cast off pieces. And I remember taking all these little odd shapes and gluing them together and making little figures of, of a little sultan, a genie, a knight. Tarzan or something like that. So I, I think I always had a natural proclivity to think in three dimensions. Mm. And so then, and you went to art school in New York City. Yeah, I went to Cooper Union. I, I went in as a transfer student. I was working at Montclair State University for a year as a student in the fine arts department there. And it was like a myth of getting to go to Cooper Union, you know, like right. no one had ever done it, you know. Right. And once I found out more about it, I was intrigued, you know, because it was a um, tuition-free four-year education. Plus, it, it just had the prestige of a world-class art school. Right. So I applied. And the admission tests were notoriously difficult because you had to create things that they specified. And I remember the year that I applied, it was your design for a useless machine and your hand holding a transparent object. So 
the useless machine I designed was a machine that would turn the pages of a book, <laughs> but it would obscure the pages as it turned them, <laughs> thus rendering it useless. And I did a, an orthographic projection of it with a perspective view in, in the style of a kind of like a retro patent drawing. And then for my hand holding a transparent object, oh, everything had to fit into a, uh, like a manila accordion folder. So they assumed that your hand holding a transparent object would be some sort of painting or drawing or photograph. But I did a bronze casting, a bas-relief bronze cast mm. with a little Herkimer diamond, which is a quartz crystal glued into the center of my hand in a stainless steel mat. And so my portfolio weighed about 25 pounds. <laughs> It must have really stood out. Got people's attention. Yeah. After I graduated, I stayed for a couple years and I, I worked with Louise Bourgeois, which was an amazing experience. Lu Louise was someone who was teaching at Cooper Union. I took her class. I remember the first day of class, she held it at her house which was very unusual at the time. I mean, uh, to go off premises, to go to a class. And she lived in a brownstone in Chelsea. And it was, she owned the whole building. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was just like one big studio for her. Mm. So we were led into the basement and Louise was fashionably late to show up. She was very terse. She was a very small woman. And she goes, you will draw Madeleine. And this woman appeared in this weird queen-like robe. She stood up on this thing and pulled her robe off and she was naked. So we started drawing and one student asked, oh, Louise, Miss Bourgeois, do you have pencil and paper? And she said, you are an art student and you do not have a sketch pad? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, uh, right. was her way of intimidating. So after we drew Madeleine, then she said, you will make a sculpture. And then she left. So we're down there, and it was like she was putting us all on the spot, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. intimidating us. So, like, there was clay, and there was things laying around. People started making little things, and I said, okay, she wants to intimidate us. I can play at this game. So I found this huge plank, like a diving board, and I leaned it up against a sturdy workbench, and then there was this huge log, and I had a couple of kids help me lift up the log and put it on the end of the plank, and it made like a diving board off the end of the... And it was very precarious and dangerous. I mean, if you were at the end with the leverage, you could knock the thing over, could break somebody's leg. Mm. So she came back down, and she looked around, and she saw my piece, and she said, who made the cantilever? <laughs> and I said, I did, and she goes, very good. Wow. And that was her highest praise, but we were fast friends ever since then. Wow. So she saw, what did, what do you think, looking back on it, what do you think she saw in you? Uh, I think the ambition and the lack of being intimidated very easily by her. And she tried to do, when she hired me as her assistant after I graduated, the first day, she led me up these stairs. She opened the closet door and she goes, you will make a portal. And she walked away. A portal, meaning? Meaning? A, a hole, a window? A, I don't know. Don't and there's know. a pickaxe on the floor. Oh. And I'm like, you know, I stood there. It was like, here she goes again. So I said, oh, okay. You know, and so I start wailing on this wall, you know, and it was, those buildings were really built. There was lath and plaster and horsehair. Mm. You know, mm. it wasn't sheetrock. Mm. So after a little while, you know, I could look through and there was a bedroom on the mm. other side. Mm. And there was plaster all over the bed and the floor from my pickaxe. <laughs> what 
what and she shows up and she goes, you break through a wall without knowing what is on the other side? Very good. <laughs> you know, she loved it. She walks away. Wow. Oh, she yeah. was a, it was she, a trip. Yeah, what a personality. Huh? Oh, yeah, she was great. But, you know, what, what she taught me was that if you were going to be a serious artist, you immerse yourself in the lifestyle. Everything she did was about art. Like, after her husband died, she ripped out her stove. She cut up her kitchen table with a chainsaw. Mm. And there were little tables remaining, and she had a hot plate. She didn't want to cook. No. She, she used to make me lunch, though. She used to make two fried eggs, a big slab of camembert. Camembert was a staple. She always had a wheel of it. Mm. <laughs> and on top of that was a raw scallion. That was lunch. And a glass of wine. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Very French. Yeah. Yeah, it was... It was great times. So you were with her for a couple of years. Yeah. And she obviously had a really strong impression on you. What initiated you stepping away from her? I think I was too young, too impatient. I didn't take full advantage of her associations and her relationships with people in the art world. You know, I was young and mm -hmm. foolish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I ran off to California with my girlfriend and I started working at a newspaper there doing illustration. Then one day I would I was doing freelance illustration for the the editor of the paper. And then one day he says to me, "Don, Kirk McDonald, the publisher wants to talk to you." I said, "Okay." So the next day I went to see Kirk. He was a young guy, just a few years older than I was, and he said, let me show you your new office. And he goes into this building and they're constructing. He goes, this is going to be the dark room. And he goes, you know how to do pace up, how to do advertising, right? Uh -huh. Which I really didn't. And I said, oh, yeah, of course, sure. You know, <laughs> he said, when can you start? And I said, well, uh, in a couple of weeks, I have to tie up some loose ends. That was my crash course in cut and paste and, and layout. And layout. Yeah. So that seems though very a big change from studying fine art and being it in was. that world and now moving into the world of commerce and design and it was and you know the thing is when you're at cooper union you're in this petri dish which is all good i mean my teachers read like a who's who i had jim dine as a drawing teacher vito conchi as a, as a sculpture teacher i the list goes on and on and when you get out you figure like the heavenly gates are going to open and you're going to hear the heavenly trumpets, dun da 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 you know, and you go out into the real world and people say, Cooper what? Cooper who? What are you talking And it was just like devastating. Right. So I just kind of like found my way back into the art world through the back door, through necessity. So I worked for a couple years as the art director of this little newspaper called The Citizen in Solana Beach. And then I was on vacation visiting my family in New York, and my sister, who was an on-air personality for ABC, said, you should go see the art director, Ben Blank. I said, yeah, why not? I'll be here for another week. You know, so I didn't really have a great portfolio. I had mostly illustrations I was doing for the newspaper. I didn't mm -hmm. know anything about television. Mm -hmm. So I went in to see Ben Blank. And he said, a Cooper man. I was like, wow. Finally. Right? He goes, I was a Cooper man. Oh. We don't have any Cooper people here. I thought, well, now's your chance to change that, you know. So he said, like, this has nothing to do with what we do on television. I said, I know, but, you know, I'm a quick study. 
and he hired me and the, the rest is history i was i ended up being uh the creative producer graphics producer assistant art director for all on-air content for news sports entertainment in new york it was it was amazing now was this the local abc affiliate or, or no the, the it was network, the, network. the network so that's a pretty rarefied role yeah, and I I just dug into it. I, I I was I was in the right place at the right time. That's how I say because what what happened is one day we we used to make graphics out of colorade paper and colored pencils. Mm-hmm. We cut them out bl- areas of color, you know, like a map blue for the ocean and you know beige for so the land and that's co- way before the chiron or anything, huh? Well, we had chirons at the time, but we when we would color in the topography with colored pencils, you know. And then one day they got this machine called the paint box. Right. And they took all the senior artists. I was on the low man on the totem pole. They hadn't hired anybody in 10 years. <laughs> Cuz it was a union shop. And they put all these, the senior people who were older gentlemen, you know, they sent them to classes to learn the paint box. They oh didn't boy. learn anything. Of course not. So I was on the night shift because I was the dirt. <laughs> and I would sneak into the paint box and I started doing, I mean, to me, it was intuitive. Right. You know, it was just another, it was just another tool. So when Ben Blank, the art director, was tasked with showing it to the, the director of World News Tonight, whose name was Charlie Hines at the time. These guys couldn't show him anything. And he said, isn't there anything I can use? And I said, can I show you some stuff I did? And it, I was hired the next day full time. So like I say, I was at the right place at the right time. So I'm sort of imagining that you're one of the unsung heroes then of what has happened in graphics and on any television station in any well, market. Well, I don't know about an unsung hero, but I was definitely there at a seminal period yeah. where they were transitioning from the analog world to the digital world. Right. And I was very instrumental in making that happen. And and the look, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's very signature looks in television graphics. Yes, you know? there is. And so I think I'm talking to somebody who was part of creating all that, which is kind of fun. Yeah, it was fun. Well, I did win the Emmy in 1990, and I was nominated several times. So I feel like I had a very successful career. But my heart was really in fine art. Right. So let's talk about that. You know, I was still using my art and design skills, Mm -hmm. just not in the way that was, let's say, free to express my own feelings about things. You know, I was basically a corporate person. So in the transition, I taught at a university overseas for two years. I taught art and I taught video production and electronic design. And I sort of eased into fine arts. I had I had my first one-man show in Ankara. Turkey? Yeah, that's where I was teaching at Bill Kent University in Ankara. Oh, wow. It's an English-speaking university. It was fantastic. It was a great transition in retrospect. And people respected... I think this is more the, the climate in Europe where people accept you as an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in New York, where I grew up, you'd say you were an artist and people would like roll their eyes, you know, and say, oh, you know, what is he, a bum or something? If you say you're an artist in Europe, people are like, yes, you're an artist the same way somebody's a shoemaker or a doctor or a lawyer. So I said, hey, I really am an artist. So I came back to the States in, I think it was 95. I rented a little place and I had had my first sculpture studio and I, I was very fortunate to find almost immediate success because I had three young children. The, mm. My youngest son was born in Turkey and, you know, a family to support. And so 
I, I was actually doing sculptures all along, you know, as a dilettante, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I fully immersed myself in it, it was, you know, it was the feeling like this was right. So what was the first one when you got back from Turkey and the first sculpture? <laughs> I, was, I was experimenting with a technique called repoussé, which is French for hammering from the back. I thought it was an easy way to create dimensional sculpture without a lot of tools. I mean, I was starting from scratch. So I was hammering copper from the back and creating these little faces. And I, I, I still have my first sculpture. It's a little dinner plate size face. So how did you start then? How did you build your collectors or your market? And then also, your sculptures are now very big, most of them. Yeah, they so are. So how did you, you know, you do like, for instance, horses that are the size of real horses. Right? Yeah, and larger. When I was at Cooper Union, I was making large metal sculptures. Mm -hmm. I made some 20 foot tall pieces and some giant pieces. So it was always something that I sort of had wrapped my head around. And it was just a matter of figuring out how I could make it work in a small studio. And I went from one studio to the next. And then I ended up living in Taos, New Mexico for a while. Mm. And then um, Southern California. And then I did a uh, an artist residency in Kingman, Arizona for a half a year. And then I ended up moving to Florida. So in each of these places, you were building your body of work? Yes, yes. I was making a list. I went on your website, and you have many, many sculptures. Yeah, well, discounting large scale, I've made thousands of pieces. I think one of my assets is that I'm a hard worker, you know, and I realize that when you're an artist, it's like any other job. You have to get into your studio and work. And I do have that work ethic and doing that over 23 or four years now mm -hmm. being an independent artist mm -hmm. you amass a lot of work i'm not married to any style or form i like to say that sculptors are object makers but i consider myself an idea maker although the ideas eventually manifest themselves as objects it's still the strength of the idea that makes the object work for me. Where do the ideas come from? Yeah, well, that's a good one. You know, I find that I do some of my best thinking on my walks. And because of my condition, I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's as of three years ago. One of the ways I try to combat it is I take an hour walk every day without fail. Just like you, you brush your teeth, mm -hmm. it's like something mm -hmm. you do, I take my walk. And it gives me time to contemplate the ideas that I've been working on. And I really do come up with some great ideas on my walks. You know, right. I just kind of like ruminate over the suggestions of the RFQs and the RFPs. And, and I also just try to stay in my own little bubble, as contrary as that sounds. Like, I don't like to look at a lot of art. I mean, I'm interested in the history of art. I'm a student of art history, but I don't do like Google image searches of it because it can be so disappointing somehow and demoralizing because there's so much out there. It's like you feel like, why, why try? You know, look, it's all been done. Uh. So I kind of stay in my own little world. Mm -hmm. 
Water jet cutting is a technique that's been around for a while where very a high pressure stream, the, the thickness of a pencil lead is directed at an object and in, in the water is microscopic grains of garnet which act as an abrasive and it cleanly cuts through steel with no heat. Wow. Five inch steel even. I mean, it's incredible. So that's attached to a CAD program where your designs are programmed in and then it's cut out to perfect accuracy. That's how I did the Dali mustache for the Dali Museum in mm -hmm. St. Petersburg. So uh, if somebody hasn't seen that, what, what is the Dali mustache? Well, there was a an aging foam mustache in their garden. It was from a billboard. And they said, well, do you want it? And, you know, it was made of styrofoam. And they said, do you want it? And they said, sure, you know, it'll be a tourist. And it sat on the ground and was falling apart. And they wanted a, a real homage to Dali's mustache. So I submitted an idea based on a parallax design that I had done uh, years before in Albany, New York, which is a series of parallel plates designed in such a way as to interact to form a dimensional image when you look at it from a certain angle and a series of parallel lines from another. And they loved the idea because it was kind of surreal. surreal right, <laughs> right. It was kind of like my, I had only been in St. Pete about a year and it was a great entree to the arts community here. You know, my work has just blossomed here. It's just incredible. I'm fond of saying that you have to diversify your revenue streams when you're an artist because you can't put all your eggs in one basket. But if you have some grants, some commissions, some private sales, some licensing, and you know, they all add up to a, a, a life supporting income. So one of the things that you and I had talked about was how an artist does create those different income streams. Yeah, it's, a, you know, it's such an obscure journey for each artist, you know, and I, try, I, I have a lot of assistants and people that help me at the studio. Jeff Stewart, for one, David Hauser, Eve Pitts, Danae Donovan, and they're all young, aspiring artists for the most part. And it's, you know, they ask me for advice and things. And it's so difficult because, you know, everybody's journey is different. But I think there are some basic things that people can benefit from. The protocol of dealing with galleries or applying to shows or applying for public art opportunities. These are all things that, you know, have clear divisions of labor in them. You have to get your resumes ready, you have to have your statements, you have to have your letter of interest, you have to have all these things, and you have to have images of your work. I'm always stressing to young artists that they have to photograph every day. Right. And it's so easy now with our phones. You know, I used to have to schlep a big camera around all the time, but you know, the, the you have to document your work as it progresses, not only the finished product. It's very important because that's your over, and you have to be able to show people what you do. I liken the public art process as kind of a modern iteration of the Renaissance patronage system, where the Medici's would support artists, you know, Fra Lippo Lippi or Michelangelo to create works of art that promoted their agendas. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what these towns are doing. I enjoy looking for these opportunities, coming up with an idea, 
romancing the jury and the committee because with the bigger commissions you have to go and present your presentation and do the whole song and dance and I, I really enjoy that it's it's fun public art allows you to realize your ideas in a much more grandiose way than if you were just working on your own the commission for Boynton Beach it's town square it's a project that involves proximity sensing sound light and it's kind of a very electronically interactive project, which necessitates the use of an electronic engineer to figure out how to make these things. Tell me more about that sculpture. Yeah, it's, it's really an interesting piece, and I was very honored to get that commission. It's eight 10-foot-tall stainless steel tubes that are 10 inches in diameter, and it's placed in an octagonal formation like kind of a modern iteration of, of a Stonehenge or oh. the ancient pillars of Greece, so to speak. And as you walk by them, they respond. Mm. There's proximity sensors that start a sequence of sounds that as you walk from one to the next, the sounds kind of radiate around. They're, they're in a 20-foot diameter circle. And at night, there's a light sensor, and there's a ring of light LEDs around the top of each one, which light in different sequences as well. That's so interesting to me, because I think one of the things that's happening in public art a lot is engagement. Yes. That the fact that you are there as an audience is really becomes relevant. Well, that brings up a whole host of things that I always think about, uh, audience engagement and so forth. You know, as visual artists, we don't have the same audience engagement as, let's say, a singer, a dancer, or a person who appears on stage, they get immediate feedback. Either they get booed off the stage or they get applause. And we don't get that. You know, we put up a piece and while it's sitting there, people are coming by and they're saying, this is great or this sucks or whatever they want to say. But we don't get that feedback. So there's like a break in the feedback loop, you know. Mm. It's for that reason, I always wanted to put a, some type of a little digital recording device oh. that would record the reactions to your sculpture or your painting and then gang it all up and you could watch it. And it would be like having a, you know, a direct <laughs> feedback from an audience. You know, you always get people that say, oh, this is great. This is... But it, I mean, I think it's a larger problem in how do we get critical feedback as artists. And one of the ways I addressed that was I did a salon in Tampa at the American Institute of Architecture. The, the salon was something I learned from Louise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Every Sunday she would have people come in from all over the world, artists bring their work, and we would discuss the work. Mm. And it was a great event. I mean, it was just, it was informal, but it was a way to kind of take like the college critique into the professional world, which is sorely lacking. I mean, where do you get critical feedback for your work? Once you leave school. You yeah, know. once yeah. you leave school. I got a commission from the city of Pompano Beach to do a very unusual sculpture. It's going to be exhibited on the beach for one year then it's going to be loaded onto a ship, sailed out to sea, sunk in the ocean, and attached to the deck of a shipwreck, which is forming an artificial reef. Oh, wow. And I just, I couldn't say no to that one. Yeah. That is fantastic. And my idea, again, I thought about this on my walk, and I, I at first I wanted to do some totemic figures, because I, I just fancied coming across that. And then I said, you know what? 
you know what every oh and it's a it's a popular dive site for scuba divers and they have events there believe it or not they have the world series of underwater poker tournaments <laughs> <laughs> but i said an unplundered treasure chest full of gold oh wow that's what everybody wants to see yeah. and come across on the beach or yeah. the ocean. Yeah. So that's, I'm fabricating it. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone will get their wish. Yeah. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being here. I have been speaking with Don Gelinella, who makes amazing sculptures all over the country. Well, Don, thank you. It's um, been a pleasure speaking with you. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley, and if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.